the beginning, God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock and so forth over all the earth itself. However, in recent years, various thinkers have begun to challenge mankind's dominion. From Silicon Valley boardrooms to academic philosophy departments, a seemingly inconceivable idea is being seriously discussed, that the end of humanity's control of Earth is imminent. That in itself is not inconceivable, given the proliferation of nuclear weapons. But what the Atlantic Magazine reports is inconceivable is that mankind should welcome its own demise. The emerging sentiment is that humanity is nearing its end, but evolving into something better. The quest for eternal life is being pursued by humans, but through machines, which is a blatant rejection of the gospel's offer of eternal life. So today I want to ask, in which state would you rather be throughout eternity? Would you rather exist in a resurrected, immortal, ageless body or in some sort of artificial machine? The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. Today in this program, we want to do real exploits by encouraging as many persons as possible to reach for the gift of eternal life that Jesus, the risen Savior, freely offers to every repentant soul, as opposed to hoping that some form of eternal life can somehow be short-circuited through machinery and transhumanism. In the 1966 book, The Order of Things, French philosopher Michel Foucault proposed that every historical period has its ways of thinking to determine what is truth and what's the acceptable discourse about a subject. Foucault brushed aside the truth of the Bible, and his central idea was that the modern concept of man was invented in the 18th century with the emergence of new modes of thinking about biology and society. And he said the concept of mankind will, in turn, be replaced or updated. In the book's last eerie sentence, Foucault wrote that one day, man would be erased like a face drawn in the sand at the edge of the sea. But the image of humanity can be withdrawn only if there are humans to do it. Now, in scientific classification, human beings are tagged with the name Homo sapiens, which is Latin for wise man. A Swedish botanist coined the term. But how wise are Homo sapiens in our generation? The Atlantic article went on to say that even the most radical 20th century thinkers stopped short at the prospect of the actual extinction of Homo sapiens. Humanity may be destined to disappear someday, 
but almost everyone agreed that the day of extinction should be postponed as long as possible. Now, by contrast, transhumanism is highly radical because it says Homo sapiens can be improved upon and can evolve to become godlike. Well, it's the same old lie rehashed from the Garden of Eden when Satan conned Adam and Eve, saying that they would become like God. Transhumanism glorifies scientific and technological progress and the supremacy of reason. It believes that the only way forward for humanity is to create new forms of intelligent life that will no longer be Homo sapiens. In fact, many Bible scholars speculate that transhumanism is exactly what the forthcoming beast, a.k.a. the Antichrist of the book of Revelation, will inevitably produce corrupted mankind whose DNA is somehow altered in order to take the mysterious mark of the beast. And thus, these marked individuals will no longer technically be Homo sapiens, but they'll be something like Homo sapiens 2.0, and thus they will no longer be in the image and likeness of God. And that's why Bible scholars speculate that after taking the dreaded mark of the beast, these individuals will become irredeemable and thus destined for hell because they're no longer the human creatures for whom Messiah died to make an atonement. So the passport to hell is the future mark of the beast, according to Revelation 14, 11. In the meantime, transhumanists believe that human beings will take the first steps toward escaping their physical form sooner than most people actually realize. In fact, reports of transhumanism experiments are going ahead full speed. Take, for example, the Israeli thinker and professor Yuval Noah Harari. He's a best-selling author who writes about the cognitive revolution that he claimed occurred when Homo sapiens supplanted archaic Neanderthal man. Harari says that Homo sapiens developed language skills and structured societies, and ascended as apex predators at the top of the food chain. His books also examine the possible consequences of a futuristic biotechnological world in which intelligent organisms are surpassed by their own creations. Now, concerning the end times, it's interesting that Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, Jesus mentioned the biblical patriarch Noah in Matthew 24, verse 37. Yeshua prophesied, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Well, Harari's name just happens to be Yuval Noah Harari, whether or not he believes in the Bible. The fact that he carries the biblical name of Noah to me it's just another little sign that the last days predicted by Jesus are in your face and unavoidable despite grandiose futuristic projections. Yuval Noah Harari has famously predicted Homo sapiens as we know them will disappear in a century or so. He refers to this idea as dataism, describing it as a new religion 
whose supreme value is data flow. Harari has written that this cosmic data processing system will be like God. It will be everywhere and will control everything, and humans are destined to merge into it. This goes along with the ideas of the popular transhumanist guru, Ray Kurzweil. In his 2005 book, The Singularity is Near, Kurzweil describes himself as a patternist. That's someone who views patterns of information as fundamental reality. Transhumanists refer to the singularity with awe and anxiety. In technology, the singularity describes a hypothetical future in which technology spins out of control and becomes irreversible. In a paper written in 2002 called Analyzing Human Extinction Scenarios and Related Hazards, the philosopher Nick Bostrom classified such things as bangs in which mankind could be completely wiped out by disease, nuclear war, or asteroid impacts, or whimpers in which humanity survives but achieves only a minuscule degree of what could have been achieved. Bostrom thinks it's quite reasonable to believe that the world could be radically transformed and humanity deposed over the course of only an hour or two before the artificial intelligence creators realize what has happened. He speculated that the most radical challenge of artificial intelligence is that it forces us to ask why humanity's goals deserve to prevail. An artificial intelligence takeover would certainly be bad for the human beings who are alive when it occurs, but Bostrom speculates that perhaps a world dominated by non-human minds would be morally preferable with less cruelty and waste. Well, all of this futuristic talk never takes into consideration that Jesus, Yeshua, will return and intervene to save this planet. So we're living in extraordinary and apostate times. With the white-hot advances in technology, we're increasingly learning of ambitious developments in transhumanism, and the trend will not stop until Jesus returns. Many are promoting the philosophic ideas of their guru, Ray Kurzweil, especially his concept of the singularity. Kurzweil predicts that in the near future, a moment will come when artificial intelligence will become so smart that robots can take over. And of course, this scenario is the narrative of many popular science fiction books and films like I, Robot, and, of course, the television series Star Trek. In a recent podcast, Kurzweil speculated that if anyone under the age of 40 can survive the next three decades, they'll be able to experience eternal life by becoming some sort of super-intelligent machines through a fusion of humans and robots. So now we have computer scientists promising eternal life even if you have to become a machine to achieve it. So close the irrelevant churches. No need for religion or the Bible. They claim we're going to become gods and live forever. Well, 
That's the secular view of the future as imagined in the heart of lost, God-denying sinners. They may be highly educated people with degrees from big name universities, but they're ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And they're scrambling desperately to overcome death and to avoid judgment by creating their own terrifying silicon gate to another dimension. The quest for eternal life has, of course, been an age-old legend. From searching for the Holy Grail to exploring the beaches of Florida for the elusive fountain of youth. This painting is a 19th century artist's impression of Ponce de Leon and his explorers drinking from a spring in Florida, seeking the fountain of youth. But now the world is anticipating that all you need to achieve eternal life is to plug yourself into a machine and live forever. If you believe there really is a creator in heaven, do you think he's going to sanction this? I'm certain that as Psalm 2-4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs and he will have the transhumanists in derision. Eternal life can't be short-circuited by sinners. Are we so hard-hearted and foolish in our quest for eternal life that we're unwilling to find eternal life the only true way? through Jesus, who has the authority to freely give it? Jesus told the teacher in Israel named Nicodemus the most famous verse in the Bible, and we must take this verse to heart in light of the transhumanist alternative. In the verses, of course, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. Amen. Now, whose word are we going to believe? Jesus, Yeshua, or somebody like Yuval Noah Harari? Let's consider the validity of Jesus' words. The Gospel of John tells us an unusual story of an encounter between Jesus and a woman at Jacob's well in the biblical territory of Samaria. We only know a few things about her. Astonishingly, she had had five husbands, and the man she was living with at the time was not her husband. She lived in the ancient city of Shechem, and she had carried her water pot to Jacob's well, where she met Jesus. The Lord had walked the 40 miles north from Jerusalem, and he was weary and thirsty, but had no utensil with which to draw water. So he asked the woman for a drink. Now, in the cultural context of the day, several things were quite shocking about this encounter. First, Jews often took the route north to Galilee through the Jordan Valley just to avoid the Samaritan territory because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Then, the fact that Jesus spoke to an unaccompanied woman was unthinkable. But he and the woman engaged in a long and detailed conversation much to the astonishment of his disciples when they returned with food provisions. They were surprised to see Jesus engaged in conversation with a woman. Among the important things he had told her, as recorded in John 4, 14, was, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, he said, the water I give will become 
in that person a fount of living water springing up to eternal life. Sir, the woman exclaimed, give me this water. How extraordinary that Jesus would openly promise eternal life to the Samaritan woman. And even more amazing, not only did she believe him, but she spearheaded a two-day revival in Samaria. No wonder that Jesus appreciated the Samaritans. No wonder in the Gospel of Luke is recorded his parable of the Good Samaritan. And as recorded in John 4:39, many of the Samaritans believed in Yeshua. Why? Because of the female evangelist, that Samaritan woman at the well who had borne witness. Come, she said, come see a man who told me all the things I've ever done. Can this be the Messiah, the anointed one? So the people left the village and were coming to Yeshua. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who had testified, he told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans urged Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed in Samaria two days. And many more believe because of Yeshua's own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, what I want to emphasize most of all today is that the Bible is God's promise to us that there is only one way, one hope to realize eternal life, and that is through the Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. He paid the price by dying on the cross, and then he rose from the dead to make eternal life possible for sinful, lost, homo sapiens. That's the fact that the Christian church has declared for 2,000 years. But if Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness and the real certainty of eternal life, what's holding some of you back from actually receiving him? Perhaps you have doubts. Perhaps you want proof that Jesus is who he is and the Son of God who has power to make such promises. Stay with me because I want to give you the rock-solid, concrete evidence that Jesus is the only way to eternal life to be found in this world. The Samaritan woman found her Savior because Jesus demonstrated his divinity to her. He told the woman that an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For he said the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. The woman replied, I know that Messiah is coming and when he comes, he'll declare all things to us. Now notice what Jesus answered. He said, I who speak to you am he. Let's let that statement sink in. Yes, contrary to a lot of opinions, it's recorded here in John chapter 4 that Jesus plainly said he is the Messiah. And what an astounding revelation. He said that whoever drinks of the water that he gives will never thirst, ever. But the water, he said, I give you will become in you a well springing up to eternal life. Jesus is indeed the source to the eternal fountain of youth. Wouldn't you want to claim that promise for yourself? Well, I'd like to present solid evidence, proof, if you like, that when Jesus spoke, 
his words and his promises about eternal life are reliable and rock solid, as you'll see. Let's look further at Luke chapter 21. Yeshua and some of his disciples were standing on the Mount of Olives, looking in the direction of the resplendent temple. The apostles were admiring the beauty and spiritual significance of what was considered the most magnificent building of its time in the world. They pointed out to Jesus how the temple's gold leaf gleamed in the sun and was adorned with exquisite stones. But Jesus shocked them by declaring, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. How shocking. Yet, fast forward to 70 AD and Yeshua's prophecy was fulfilled by the Roman army of General Titus. It was a long and violent siege of Jerusalem as described by the historian Josephus, ending with the storming of the Temple Mount and the temple building itself being ransacked, pillaged, and set on fire. According to the eyewitness account of the historian Josephus, Titus gave orders that they should demolish the entire city and the temple. And Josephus wrote, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground that nothing was left to make those that came after to believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Well, today visitors to Jerusalem hear the story of that monumental destruction remembered each year on Tisha B'Av. That's the ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar. It's a solemn fast day when Jewish people mourn the loss of both their temples and recite the book of Lamentations. So the prophecy Jesus spoke over the temple came to pass. And now I want to show you the evidence of the validity of that prophecy that's still in plain sight today. It's here for everyone to see at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. The Davidson Center at the Jerusalem Archaeological Park allows visitors to explore the excavations along the southern wall of the Temple Mount. As you approach the southwest corner, you'll find the gigantic rubble, evidence of all the terrible violence and destruction by the Roman army. They must have had a marathon demolition job to dislodge these massive stones, most weighing multiple tons, to push them over the top of the platform onto the city streets far below. Those mighty remnants of the temple have been left just as they were for the past 2,000 years as silent testimony to the destruction of an entire society and religious way of life. Archaeologists have even found ashes mixed within the stones from the fire that ravaged the temple. Please note that the famous Western Wall, where the Jewish people pray, still stands, but it was not part of the temple itself. It was part of the retaining wall that held up the temple complex. So the stones of Jerusalem are a witness to the fulfilled words of Jesus. And he himself mentioned the evidence of the stones in Luke 19, which describes the Lord's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It says that as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But notice Jesus answered, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. These stones, in fact, cry out to us today. My point in sharing this with you is a simple conclusion. When telling his followers what to expect in the future, Jesus told them something they could hardly comprehend. Their beautiful temple would be wiped out within their own generation. Those ancient stones at the bottom of the Temple Mount testify that the prophecy of Jesus did come to pass. I want you to know we can trust his word on any matter, just as we can trust the Lord's word on eternal life, declaring himself to give each individual seeker a well of water springing up to eternal life. Recently, I reported on the ancient water libation ceremony that's being revived by temple activists during the annual Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Water is an emblem of the Holy Spirit, as mentioned not only in John 4 with the encounter at the well with the woman, but also in John chapter 7, where we're told on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and announced in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Would you like to drink this living water? Jesus is the real fountain of life. No need for the singularity for you to become a robot or a transhuman machine. The world is dangling before us, a very deceptive and false narrative, when all along the Bible guarantees the real gift of eternal life through the merits of the Savior. Let's not be fooled or sidetracked from the truth, the good news of the gospel. You can receive from Jesus the free gift of eternal life. Religion is not going to save your soul, but Jesus will. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. The transhumanist can't save you or exonerate you from sins on Judgment Day. But now is the time to get to know the Lord. How? By inviting Him into our hearts and daily communing with His Holy Spirit. Invite the Savior into your life, and He will become your best friend, your Lord, your Savior, and the Good Shepherd who will guide you safely through these troublesome times. Amen. Today, I also want to draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv. We continually report on Bible prophecy and end-time events relating to the church and Israel. Also, we invite you to sign up for our free electronic magazine, Exploits, at our website and at our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube. We have uploaded a library of videos available 24-7. Friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm listening for the sound of the shofar that the day of the Lord is drawing near and soon we will see King Messiah. In the meantime, Daniel 11.32 declares, the people who know their God, that's it, we have to know God. We're going to be strong, not weak, by His grace. 
And we're going to do exploits, meaning that we will accomplish the works of the Lord before his imminent return. Have any questions? Feel free to contact me on social media. In the meantime, may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha. A new day begins over Jerusalem's Western Wall Plaza, where Jews and Christians from all over the world gather to worship, pray, and petition the God of Israel. The Holy City is a unique mix of tradition, history, and religious fervor that makes it the center of the world. Through your support of the Jerusalem Channel, we're able to present to a global audience a spiritual insight into the Bible and Bible prophecy that will impact your life. Thank you for being part of these programs. To make a gift, visit our website at jerusalemchannel.tv or download our free Jerusalem Channel app where you can donate by credit or debit card. Celebrate with us this ancient capital that will one day soon be the worship center of the Messiah.